interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Words have to become flesh. Words have to become flesh. I've mentioned a couple of times that I, my first memories of life were in Davis, California, and having greenhouses and cows and dogs and experiments going on with beagles, and I was always fascinated to go to the little beagle part of the UC Davis campus and see the puppies and put my fingers in, and I had no idea it was radiation they were testing out on these beagles at the time, and you know, I was pretty innocently putting my fingers through the fence and playing with the puppies' mouths, and they were actually being tested to see what would happen if we did atomic bombs, I suppose, on dogs. I don't know. Um, but it was uh, an innocent moment in my life, really. Um, but learning to bicycle was a big part of, of course, life in Davis, and, and that was a, something which I still prize and am grateful for that memory. Um, my father chose to spend his life in that world, and... Uh, Part of what, you know, is I watched him work out his life, which probably till about eighth grade I thought would be my life. And then I thought, I don't think so when I got to be 14, 15. But I thought all the way through those years, I would be like my dad. Um, but my father was a plant pathologist, and he worked on cotton diseases. For surprising to people who don't really know what this would be like, that for most of the 20th century, cotton was the major cash crop of California. Um, and he worked on a disease called verticillium wilt. That was his dissertation topic, and he gave the next 40 years of his life to actually trying to understand verticillium wilt and seedling disease in cotton. That was his dissertation, and that was his life study, really. Um, but part of what my father chose to do was to place himself in relation to people who actually were growing the cotton of California. Um, as I watched him over the years of his life, I think as I began to have more categories and more understanding of what work was and who did what and what it meant, it intrigued me you know, to think that his work, his research, his study, he chose to place in relationship to people for whom it mattered a lot. Um, now, that's not to say, you know, it's not to say that somebody couldn't do honorable, important work in the world in a laboratory and but in terms of my father's own tutelage of me, to watch him choose to do his research in a way that was in conversation with, in relationship with people who were growing the cotton of California was instructive to me. I remember one time when I got to be about 20 and thinking, so what is it you really do, Dad? You know, I never asked the question before. I said, my father's a pathologist at that, you know. And, but I finally, about 20, said, well, what do you do? You know, I said, well... Next week, you know, all the people who were deciding, because California had a one cotton rule, like it was, it was a particular kind of cotton bred and grown and sold all over the world from California. So all these plant breeders and those who were choosing, you know, how this was going to happen year by year would come together once a year to meet my father and to sort of talk through what have you learned this past year and what will we do this next year in advising and selling cotton seeds to the growers of California. So I went out with him one day just to watch this conversation happen. We walked out into fields and 
you know, talked about cotton there and walked into the, you know, the conference room and he put up on his, you know, screens and slides and conversations and, you know, I could say more and more about all that, but I'll just say this. My father, in some ways, chose to live out his life as if there was skin in the game. Um, For him, it was not only a matter of doing good theoretical research, doing good, you know, uh, research in the laboratory, which he always maintained over the decades of his life, working in a laboratory, working out in the fields as well, but also working in relation to people for whom this had consequence. Now, again, that's one story among lots of good stories that could be told, but it really is the story of my growing up. And I know that even as I decided that I would no longer imagine myself as a plant pathologist at age 14, um, I would do something different with my life. I think as I watched him, I began to be taught by him. And I began to think, in fact, that there was something about having ideas be worked out in life that was very, very important. Frank Lloyd Wright is probably one of our most famous architects. And if you have done more than visit Falling Waters or you know visit his homes scattered around the Midwest or wherever you've been to an art gallery in New York City or whatever it is, in fact, your touch with Frank Lloyd Wright's work has been. Did you know that over the course of time, this clay-footed, clay-footed, clay-footed man who did some awful things and lived some awful ways in his life. Um, that he chose to have a life where, in fact, he created a fellowship. He called them the Taliesin Fellows. And that over the course of the years of his life, he invited into his world always budding, bright, gifted, serious young architects who were willing to look over his shoulder and through his heart at the work he was doing. There's a picture on our website that I've picked from someplace else, actually, but it shows Wright at his Taliesin out in Scottsdale, Arizona. And it's a kind of an opened-up room and big windows, and you can see the southwest, perhaps, through one of the windows. But about maybe 15 of his Taliesin fellows are over his back looking at the table in front of him. Now, they weren't just there for an hour or for a day. They actually, they would spend days and weeks and months with him being trained to see the world as he saw it, uh, to do the kind of work that he was doing. And if you wanted to do ever, there actually are three or four good books about this Talies and Fellowship that show this kind of apprenticeship and learning being worked out, that show this sort of, you know, somebody who had an idea, who had words he used to describe his vision, but in fact saying that I know for it to be worked at over time, I need to actually let people into my life for them to see what it is I'm doing. That in fact, if we could put it in incarnational language, that words have to become flesh. I could give a lecture, I could write a book, but you know, if you really want to know what I'm doing, if you really want to know who I am and what it is the work I'm doing, you're going to have to come and actually stand behind me and look over my shoulder and through my heart and see the work that is mine to do. I think there's nothing that we learn that really matters to us that isn't learned like that. Gary, again, since I've talked to you a little bit today, when I asked you over lunch, so where did sustainable agriculture come into your life, Gary? You know, was it five years ago, 10 years ago, you know, 20 years ago? And now he said, my father was a rancher who got the award for, was it Nebraska or for all of America? All of America as being the most important conservation rancher in America. 
And, of course, he modeled for Gary as a young man, as a boy growing up with cows and rangeland. And, in fact, taking care of the world that was his was really important. And, in fact, it was important to renew it and to work at it and to try it again and to be careful about it and to steward it, to use this word he used with us. In fact, the stewardship that Gary now has become known for all over the place, where did he learn that? Well, I mean, there are other ways to tell the story here, but I'm just going to tell it as I heard it from you, Gary. You learned it looking over the shoulder and through the heart of your father. That's not surprising. It's not surprising at all, really. For you to learn things that really are important to you, because you're like me and you're like everyone else in this room, you see, it's the genius of God to say that words have to become flesh for us to understand them. We don't understand things We don't understand ideas. We don't understand words until we see them become flesh. I've chosen to spend probably 10 years of my life in the Gospel of John. And a lot of that interest actually has been in trying to understand what I've called, because I've taken the words of the Gospel of John, isn't my language, I've just taken these words and said, how about if we talk about a come and see pedagogy? A come and see pedagogy. If you know how this works out in John chapter 1, It's Jesus twice at least responding to people who want to learn more from him. What are you saying then? What is it you're saying? He says, well, why don't you come and see? Why don't you come and see? And of course, if you begin to listen to the conversations to the chapters of the Gospel of John, it is one more time, one more chapter, a window into the reality that words have to become flesh and live for a while among you for you to understand them. We don't understand words in the abstract. We cannot. So one of the great distinctions between Greek philosophy and the Greek philosophical tradition, where you could have abstractions, where you could have ideals of, the ideal of justice, the ideal of beauty, the ideal of goodness. You see, in the Christian vision, maybe even the Hebrew and Christian vision of life in the world, it is, in fact, that there has to be incarnation. This has to be worked out in life. Words have to become flesh. Two of the stories in the gospel that make the most sense to me of all this, that we could talk about all of them chapter by chapter, but one of them is actually in the gospel of John chapter 3. So if we've already talked about Tebowing this morning, you know, and John 3.16 on the you know, eyebrows of Tim Tebow and you know, placed as they are around football stadiums of America, uh, John 3.16 could be seen by us as being, isn't that the whole point of John chapter 3? Didn't God come into the world? For God so loved the world. We know how those those words work, really. Well, when I began to live in the Gospel of John for a longer period of time in my life, I began to see things I'd never seen before. So while I had memorized those words early on in my life, and they are a critical summary of the salvation story that the Bible tells, and it's also fair to say that isn't really the point of John chapter 3. So where does the story begin with Nicodemus, who is not just a teacher of the law, but he is the teacher of the law, as John tells the story. He's the teacher of Israel. Now, what all that meant, there's speculation about about this, and you could read more into it or less into it, but he is described as the teacher of Israel by Jesus. And he comes at at nighttime, not wanting to be this public conversation, and says, so I don't understand what you're saying. I hear you in the synagogue marketplace, in the temple courtyards, 
but I don't get it really. And Jesus comes back and he says, well, how could you not get it? Because you are the teacher of Israel after all. And of course, as we listen to the story, it goes on to familiar ideas and themes about being born again and the wind blows where it will blow. And and finally, John 3.16 is this almost seemingly summum bonum of the whole story, isn't it? For God so loved the world, didn't he? But you know what the story does as it goes on from there is it takes you and us, us into different places, actually. Not that it's in contrast at all or in argument against. It's simply it's a longer story that goes to a different place. So if the story begins with Nicodemus not getting it, not understanding Jesus, I'm hearing you, I'm listening to you, but I don't understand, I'm sorry. And Jesus back a little hard, actually saying, how could you not understand? You are the teacher of Israel after all. So the story unfolds, if you can read it yourselves, and you could see, in fact, you know, Jesus saying things like, you know, people hate the truth, don't they? They don't see the light because they hate the truth. It's another angle on moral commitment precedes epistemological insight. Uh, it's starkly stated by Jesus. People hate the truth, and therefore they don't see the light. Um, well, then it goes to a place which I found myself thinking, really, it says this in John 3? I never saw that in my whole life before, really. But it says, let me just open it up here, and you can look in your own versions of the story here. John chapter 3. This is verse 21. But whoever does, the tr- does what is true comes to the light. Various versions put it in various ways. Sometimes it said, the one who practices the truth sees the light. The one who puts the truth into practice sees the light. The one who does the truth sees the light. Now, what are we being taught by Jesus when he puts it this way? You see, it's not really finally a matter of who has the bigger brain, who's the smarter person in the room. It's the person who does the truth who sees the light. You see, it's the person who actually who puts himself, herself into a path of obedience. I choose, in fact, to follow you, O God. Calvin College has this as its motto, I think. To you, O God, I give my heart promptly and sincerely. You see, if it's Calvin College that says that, and it's John Calvin who says about John, Genesis 3, the great question of Genesis 3 is, who will be the moral arbiter of the universe? Who will decide how we're going to live in the world anyway? Will it be me, or will it be God in heaven, actually? And so here we have, in the end of this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus saying, It's the one who does the truth, who practices the truth, who sees the light. I think it really is a turning of the table on much of how we understand what discipleship is about and who is and who's in and who's not and how we grow in faith. And, you know, I am somebody who believes completely in the heart and mind nature of discipleship. In fact, it's both always at the same time. Um, So I do take these questions of intellectual, you know, belief and substance and question and doubt, I take them all very seriously in some ways. But I'm also somebody who wants to press and press and press and make sure that before it's all over, we've agreed together that the person who practices the truth sees the light. And of course, that is a conversation to have. It isn't easily arrived at sometimes. 
The next chapter takes us into a different place where the word becomes flesh. The word becomes flesh and lives for a while among us. So here Jesus is saying in John 3, you see, until the words become flesh in your life, they're not seen to be real. You won't understand them. Until you make them flesh, until you do the truth, you won't understand them. You won't know who I am. You won't know who God in heaven is. You don't know what the universe is really like until you practice the truth in your life. Because it's in practicing the truth that you begin to understand. Well, if that's John 3, John 4 tells a different story, doesn't it? It's Jesus after these conversations with Nicodemus and other people, and in some ways he's done with Jerusalem. You know, They have not listened. They have not had ears to hear. He walks back up to the Galilee as the story is told. And if you are somebody who reads these words carefully and you know the geography and the politics and the sociology of that first century Palestine, you realize that a holy person would actually cross the Jordan River to walk on the eastern side. Why? So you wouldn't have to walk through Samaria. Why? Because these were bad people to be with. They were messed up people. It was a tradition which was not honorable among a serious you know, Jew. But Jesus, of course, is a story it tells. He walks right up into Samaria, into a village, and meets in the middle of the day a Samaritan woman, as she's called. Now, again, I don't want to do eisegesis here. Um, I want to listen to the story that's told. But imagine why she might be there in the middle of the day. It's not unlike asking why Nicodemus wanted to be there late at night. I mean, they made choices, of course. And she's there in the middle of the day, perhaps because it was a less awkward time to be there but other women were not going to be there in the morning or the evening. Because why? Well, she had a life that was a little bit embarrassing to her, maybe of shame in the community. And so she's there drawing out her water. And you know how the story goes. It's a simple, innocent conversation about water resources. And I want a drink, frankly. Um, it's the middle of the day, and it's you know the Middle East, and I'm thirsty, and I'm fully God, and I'm fully human. Please, I want a drink, thank you. And then before it gets too far into the conversation, it's a story about water that you could drink that will never make you be thirsty again. And then all of a sudden, you know, Jesus says, go call your husband. I don't have a husband. Well, you've had five husbands, and one you live with now isn't your husband. I don't know about you people, brothers and sisters that you are, but I would guess that it is this conversation about relationships between males and females, men and women. Even to push it a little bit further in, the, the conversation about what sexuality is about, that perhaps it's, that it that easily is the most tender of all conversations to have. At least in the world I live in and the people I meet with, there's nothing really that's more tender than beginning to understand something about who a person sees himself or herself to be, what the history of their own longing for love actually is, and of the choices that have been made over time, and oftentimes to sorrow and disappointment. And you see, those kind of conversations almost never happen, do they? Because who are you going to talk about them with anyway? Who will you open up that part of your life to anyway? Almost no one, if anyone. It's so scary to do that, isn't it? You know, we're so fragile. We're so vulnerable as human beings, but especially in this matter of longings and yearnings to love and to be loved and the history we have as sexual people in the world. 
There's nothing that's more tender. And so Jesus pokes away here in love with this woman, asking a hard question. And she responds, and finally she says, I see that you're a prophet. Well, the story goes on a little bit, and what she do? But she runs back to her village and says what? This man has, knows everything about me. He has loved me. You come be known by him too. There are a lot of places in the scriptures we could look here. But taking this theme we've identified for the weekend, can you know the world and still love the world? I think this story in John chapter 4 is as good as it gets, actually. You see, here's Jesus offering us a window into his own vocation as God in the flesh, the word become flesh. And he shows us that the very heart of the vocation of God is, in fact, this central calling to know the world and to still love the world, to know someone and to still love that someone, to know me and to still love me, to know you and to still love you. I know the first year of being married to my wife, Meg, who I love to love, really. I found myself asking again and again over the course of that first year, do you still love me? I wanted her to, you know, but I was pretty sure that when she got to know me, how could she really? Because there were things about me that I just hated. I never really liked those things about me. And I had good roommates for a few years before getting married, and we weren't hiding our lives from each other, but they didn't know me like I knew me. And here was this strange dynamic in my heart where I wanted to be known, and yet I was afraid to be known, really. I wanted her to know me and still love me, and I was afraid that she might not be able to because I hated those things about me, really. I would say clearly the best work of grace in my life, the best gift of grace in my life, is to have someone who's chosen to do that. The more she has known me, the more she's chosen to love me. Thanks be to God, Ellie. Maybe you know how J.I. Packer has treated this in his book, Knowing God. There's a chapter, there are chapters and verses and paragraphs I've just about memorized in the course of my life. because I've read them so often over the years of my life. But there's this chapter called Knowing and Being Known. And Packer, at the very end of the chapter, comes to these words. He says, there's unspeakable comfort, comfort that energizes, not enervates, and knowing that God knew the worst about us when he chose to love us, and that no discovery now can disillusion him about us in the way that we're so often disillusioned about ourselves and quench his determination to bless us. He knew the worst about us when he chose to love us. Amen? <laughs> I mean, if that's not true, we ought to go home, really, um, in despair. We ought to sort of line up with Giacometti's walking man and say, it's me too, really. I'm alone in the universe. I am lost too. Nobody's there and I'm hardly here either. Um, if that's not true, that God, in fact, could know us and love us, what are we doing here anyway? Um, so you have in this remarkable story of John 4, in this most tender of all conversations human beings have, of Jesus in some way communicating at the same time a love for truth and a love for people at the very same time. He did not walk away from her life. He did not in some way sort of whitewash her life and saying, well, it's okay, really. But in fact, he goes surgically into the heart of her heart. And he says, 
you've had five husbands, actually. The one you live with now isn't your husband. And you see, somehow in the way he said the words, in the way he looked at her, her response was to run back to her village and say, this man knows everything about me, and I'm set free. You see, how do we live like that, people? And how is it possible to know the world like that and to still love the world? When I think about these perennial temptations, which are ours as human beings, of stoicism and cynicism, you see, again, Genesis 3, as I hear the story, it is, what are you going to do with what you know? That really is the question that comes out of Genesis 3. What will you do with what you know? And, of course, the heartache of history, the tragedy of history, is that Father Adam and Mother Eve decided, knowing what we know, we will go our own way. And over time, as I read the human heart, we decide more often than not, in one side or the other, of these related responses, because both are ways to protect our hearts from what we know, to be Stoics or to be Cynics. You see, if there's not been an incarnation, my own reading is, why not be? I mean, why wouldn't you want to be a Stoic anyway? So in this watching of the world as I do, I think oftentimes, you know, if God actually hasn't come in the flesh, if there hasn't been an incarnation, why wouldn't you be a Stoic? That's really a pretty good response, actually, because you know what? There's an awful lot that's really out there to hurt you in the world. You get too close to it, and it will crush you. It might eat your heart up, actually. You'd be disappointed for the rest of your life you get so close to that kind of hurt. Why would you want to get that close to that kind of wound? Don't get in there. Don't go there. You see, for the Stoic, it was the virtue of apatheia that was the telos of human existence. There are some Presbyterians in the room who answered the first question of the catechism, what is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, for the Stoic, man's chief end was what they called apatheia. It isn't a word we use anymore, really. We have related words like apathy, for example. But apatheia was not really a pejorative problem for the Stoic. It was really the point of life. You wanted to achieve apatheia. And apatheia was what? It was a knowledge of the world, of the way the world worked, of what, it, of what the world was like, of who you were in the world, but it kept you from getting so close that it would make you unhappy. Because, of course, most of all, what you wanted to do was to keep being happy. You wanted to sustain your happiness, to hold on to your happiness. Interestingly, Abraham Heschel, I mentioned last night, this great scholar of the Jewish tradition, in his book, The Prophets, makes this surprising claim that prophetic tradition was written into a stoic world, he argues. And so for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to actually reveal himself to be the God who, when he sees, he responds. When he hears, he responds. When he knows, he responds. And actually feels what he knows, is how Heschel puts it. He says this is in contrast, of course, to the Stoic temptation, to the Stoic world around, which said you could know, but not get so close to what you knew. You could know, but in fact, why would you want to get so close to be hurt by what you know? Benjamin Warfield, who was a professor at Princeton Seminary 100 years ago, a book of essays called The Person and Work of Christ. There's a surprising essay, and I'll talk about it tomorrow a little bit more. But it's on John chapter 11. And, but in the beginning of the essay, he says that the gospel is written into a stoic world. 
Now, whether we are self-consciously stoic or not, whether we would say, Steve, you're such a stoic, really. Ah! Um, What are we saying about somebody like that? We're saying they have chosen to be, for some reason, a little bit indifferent to what's going on. They're not responding as others might respond. They're kind of keeping a distance from, aren't they? And why? Because you see, for somebody, a full-fledged, full-born stoic, it was, I will be happy, you see. I will be happy. And I won't get so close to unhappiness to lose my happiness. Apatheia is how they described it. But you see, I don't think we can be cheap about this as Christian people. I think unless we're going to take the incarnation very seriously and find, in fact, the vocation of God shaping our vocations, the vocation of God being fundamentally at its very core to know the world and still love the world. You see, that is John 3.16, isn't it? For God so, you see, when God knows the world, he chooses to love the world. That is who God is. That's the heart of the vocation of God, to know the world and still love the world, to know the Samaritan woman and to still love the Samaritan woman. And so she finds herself released and free finally. I'm known for the first time in my life to take these remarkably pregnant, maybe poignant words of the Hebrew and Greek Testaments. Adam knew Eva's wife. You see, she's been known by a lot of men, but not loved by anybody really yet. And so she identifies so plainly and so surprisingly, and she says, it is remarkable. I am known and I am loved finally in my life. I don't think we learn anything that really matters to us apart from looking over the shoulder and through the heart. So part of my sort of calling to all of us in this as we think about this business of you know, can we know the world and still love it, about vocations and the common good, is simply to say that I think that we need to become people who increasingly intentionally make sure that our own vocations are shaped by the vocation of God. Do you hear what I'm saying when I say that? I mean, if the vocation of God, to put it again, say it repeatedly, is to know the world and still love the world. That has to be the model for our vocations. If Stott makes this argument, and he does so because the Bible teaches it in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes his mission the model for ours. As I was sent into the world, so I send you. The prayer in John 17, as I was sent, so you know, in this sending of Jesus and the sending of Jesus' people, you see, that's the dynamic in the New Testament. That's the dynamic of the Gospel. That's the dynamic of Christian mission. Jesus makes his mission the model for ours. What is the mission of Jesus? It was to know the world and to still choose to love the world. Remarkable, surprising, amazing grace as that always is. And so you see, in whatever it is we're called to do in the world, whether it's in the worlds of economics and business and agriculture and the arts or politics or the academy or neighborhoods or cities or villages or a continent, I mean, Whatever it is and wherever it is, you see, our vocations are to be like that too. We are to be people who intentionally, thoughtfully, and clearly make sure that, in fact, we wake up in the morning and we go to bed at night having tried one more day to know the world and to still love the world. And I don't say that you know, in any way to you know, gloss over how hard it is, which is why I've already said, I think unless this is actually the truth about history, 
that God's come like this in the flesh, we ought to either choose to be Stoics or Cynics. I mean, why wouldn't you be? Because it's an awful lot. It's a good, those are good answers. They're very, very good answers, unless there's been an incarnation. John Stott, late in his life, was talking to a friend of mine and who told me the conversation. But he said, you know, in response to the question, anything you would do differently now looking back on the years of your life? And Stott put it like this. Well, you know, I mean, here is this globally traveling pastor and theologian, the Pope to the Protestant world as he was, respected in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, and you know, all over our part of the world. But Stott said this. I think if I would choose one thing, it would be I would try to create a house where people could come to live with me. We would live together and try to live out a gospel-formed community together. And I would teach them what I've learned over the course of my life. Doing so in the context of eating meals together and talking together and reading together and working together. I'd want them, I'll use my words here, not his, I'd want them to invite them into a life where they in fact looked over my shoulder and through my heart at what it was I'd given my life to. If I could do one thing differently, it would be that kind of a life. I'd choose that kind of mentoring and apprenticing to be at the very center of my own vocation. Because he says, that kind of learning changes people. That kind of learning changes people. I'll give you just one last thought here. One of my colleagues is a man named Ray Blunt. And Ray spent his lifetime in the Pentagon at the Air Force Academy years ago. Uh, came to the Pentagon after that. His eyes weren't what fighter pilots needed to have for eyes, and that was a shock and a disappointment to him. And um, So he went to the Pentagon and spent his lifetime as a sort of increasingly executive officer in the Air Force. Eventually he got involved in the Veterans Affairs Department in the senior position there. And When I met him about 10 years ago, he called and said, can I talk to you? And actually he'd listened to these Mars Hill tapes. I mentioned, or I noted last night, these Polanyi two-and-a-half-hour-long discussion about tacit knowing, truthful knowing, the life and thought of Michael Polanyi. He'd heard those and thought, I was part of the program that Marshall put together. And he said, I saw you live in Washington, D.C. Can we talk about this? And so we got together to talk at a diner one morning. And, um, and Ray said to me, well, I'm interested in what you're interested in, I think. And... Uh, I said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, I train young executives in the federal government to take up more responsible lives in the world. I teach in the Federal Executive Institute and the Council for Excellence in Government, and that's what I do these days. And he told me some of the programs he was doing. And as I got to know Ray over time, what especially intrigued me was this thesis that began to be at the core of his work. And whether it was talking to the Air Force or the military branches at large or talking to corporations or government agencies, he was always one more time teaching this thesis, that if you want to have a healthy organization into the future, it will only be as those in senior positions of leadership open up their lives to those who are younger and teach them to be people of character. Now, think it through for a moment here. When you follow somebody, why do you follow it may be a job constraint that keeps you at it for a while, but probably it won't for a long time. People that you choose to give your life to are people that you believe, are people that you trust. And if you're actually going to trust your life, the livelihood and care of your family to somebody, it probably will be because you actually believe 
the person to be believable. It probably will be because you'll be the person to be somebody of honesty who actually is not going to rip you off a year from now, who isn't going to change the rules of the game six months later, who isn't going to ask you to throw your heart into the idea and the venture and the hope and then find out five years later that, in fact, it was all just a sham, a big game. People who actually follow people do so because they believe them to be trustworthy. And Ray's argument was, whoever he was talking to, again, military, business, government, leadership, he would say, if you want to be a healthy institutional organization to the future, those in senior positions of leadership are going to have to be willing to open up their lives in apprenticeship to those who want to learn and to actually let them in and see them, in fact, as people of character themselves. Because this, in fact, is the heart of a healthy institution, a healthy organization. It doesn't happen otherwise. And you see, that's not only true of the U.S. Air Force and Procter Gamble or Price Waterhouse, companies that Ray has done his work with, or various agencies of the government, despoiled sometimes as they are, very unhealthy sometimes as they are, um, faltering as they are so oftentimes, really. Um, But you see, we find ourselves, you know, in places in a pluralizing, bureaucratic, increasingly complex world where it's awfully hard to make the choice, it seems, to choose to apprentice ourselves and to learn from and actually to work with people who are people of honesty and character and integrity and, and people who could be believed to be believable. But Ray's argument was, in fact, that we will not be a healthy people. We cannot be a healthy society. We cannot be healthy organizations unless, in fact, we're able to find that kind of leadership transition to take place, that kind of leadership development to happen. And you see, it, it not only is true for those kind of bigger organizations, brothers and sisters in Christ as you are, it's true, in fact, for families, isn't it? You see, if this isn't true, this kind of over-the-shoulder, through-the-heart learning isn't being worked out, clay-footed as it will always be with you and me, in our family lives, they won't be what they ought to be. If it isn't true in congregations where those in positions of leadership and responsibility aren't making an, a thoughtful, intentional choice to open up their lives to people who, in fact, will be the future of the congregation and actually teaching them to see the world as you see it, to care about it as you care about it, to have them come along with you looking over your shoulder and through your heart. In fact, it won't be what you really want it to be. Wendell Berry will get the last word here whether you like it or not. But in one of his essays, he says simply, love longs for incarnation. Love longs for incarnation. Love longs for incarnation. You see whether it's that in the most personal parts of your life and mine, people we live with and sleep with and eat with day by day, or whether it's in fact people we live next door to along the same street as, people we shop with, people we work with, people we worship with, people that we work out our life with in the context of communities and cultures and civilizations and continents. You see, I think it is a true truth to be worked out in your life, in your vocation, as it is in my vocation, that love longs for incarnation. Amen?